Well, the focus of uh, my sermon this morning is on prayer. I can't stress to you how important prayer is. It's important in the life of a believer, and it's important in the life of the church. We talk a lot about prayer here at North Point, and the reason we do is because it is so essential. Prayer is just as important to your spiritual life as your blood is to your physical life. You know, if you uh, drain your blood from your body, you will become weaker and weaker. So what happened to my mother. She was bleeding in her leg, and uh, she lost a lot of blood, and her body began to become weak because she was losing the vitality of the, the blood flow in her body. It's also true spiritually. If you take prayer away from your spiritual life, your spiritual vigor will be drained away and you will become weaker and weaker in your spiritual life. But to be honest, prayer is just as difficult as it is important. You know, many times we struggle to pray, don't we? We struggle to pray regularly. We struggle to pray consistently. We struggle to pray meaningfully. I won't take time to go into the reasons for all that, but, but you know that's true. I have yet to meet a Christian. Maybe you're one of them. I haven't yet, though, met a Christian and talked to a Christian who didn't struggle with a prayer. They struggle with some frustration with it, some difficulty with it, some inconsistency with it. But the Bible makes it clear that prayer is important. Communication with God is essential if you're going to grow spiritually if you're going to bear spiritual fruit. You can't abide in Christ as we are exhorted to do if you have no relationship with Him and no communication with Him. But the flip side is true. The more you communicate with Him, the deeper your relationship with Him will be and the more intimately you'll abide in Him. Well, with that in mind, we come to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. And we find Paul here urging us to pray. It's clear this is important to Paul because this is the first thing he gets to right after he has dealt with the most urgent matter that Timothy was dealing with in the church in Ephesus, and that was the matter of the false teachers. You know, he began this letter to Timothy saying, look, you've got to stop the false teachers who are causing such unrest in the church. And then in chapter 2, he immediately begins to talk about prayer, where he says, first of all, then I urge you to pray. Now, in the broader context, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, Paul is telling us to pray evangelistically and to pray globally. We'll see later this morning, it's far too often our prayers are far too narrow and far too small. You know, we have a big God who's on a big mission and who calls on us to offer big prayers. This morning, I want us to deal only with these first two verses where we find what really is an urgent call to prayer. And I want to point you to three things from this text. First, we see that we're to offer various kinds of prayer. Paul uses four words in verse 1 to call us to pray. They're synonyms, 
but there are distinct differences between each of these words, and they teach us something different about prayer. Look with me at these four different words Paul uses. The first is entreaties. Some versions translate that word supplications or requests. This is not a specifically religious word, but it refers to any request that any person makes of anyone for anything. The fundamental idea behind this entreaty is some sense of need. You have a need, you have a lack, and so you go to someone, you ask them to assist you, to give you what you need. There is a sense, isn't there, in which all true prayer arises out of some sense of need. Your need for God, your need for His help, your need for His grace, your need for His provision, your need for His guidance. You get the idea the need could be any number of things. But whatever the need is, it leads us to pray, to make an entreaty to God. The second word he uses is the word prayer itself. Now this is strictly a religious word. It refers to a request made to God. The word entreaty reflects a request made of a man to a man or, or, or to God. This is a request only made to God. It's a prayer. Uh, there are certain needs that only he can meet, only certain desires only he can fulfill. And this word really reflects an act of worship. Prayer is an act of worship. Not simply an expression of our wants and needs, but coming to God is an act of worship. The third word he uses is petitions. Some of your translations may use the word intercessions. This word really reflects a kind of intimacy. To draw near to a person. To talk in confidence with them. It conveys the kind of fellowship we have with God as we pray. The joy we have as we, we come to him, as we've already seen this morning, as our Heavenly Father. And the assurance that we have as we pray. And then the last word Paul uses is thanksgivings. All of our prayers should be offered with the spirit of thanksgiving. The way I like to say it is this. How can we ask God for more until we are first thankful for what he's already given or already done? Someone else put it this way. We have the right to bring our needs to God, but we have the duty of bringing our thanksgivings to Him. All prayer, even prayers that we offer in time of sorrow or grief or sadness or need, should be offered with the spirit of thanksgiving. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. How? With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And so this is really an urgent plea. And you can tell how urgent it is because he says, first of all, and then he gives us four different ways we're to pray. We're to entreat the Lord. We're to pray to God. We're to lay our petitions before him. And we're to do it all with the spirit of thanksgiving. So there is this urgent call to prayer and a variety of kinds of prayer. But second, we are to offer prayer for various kinds of people. And notice 
that at the end of verse 1, Paul says these prayers, entreaties, petitions, and thanksgivings are to be made on behalf of all men. And here's where we begin to see that we're to have broad prayers. So often our prayers are far too limited. We tend to pray for the immediate needs and for those in our close, tight inner circle. I'm just as guilty of that as anyone. You know, our, our prayers quite often are driven just like the rest of our lives by the tyranny of the urgent. The things we pray for the most deeply are the things that we feel the most deeply. But here Paul is appealing for a broader perspective toward prayer. We're to pray for all men. Now, we're to, going to look in the next section at more specifically what that means when Paul says uses the word all and to pray for all men. It doesn't mean that you're to pray for every person on the planet. It's impossible. Or necessarily even to pray for every person that you know. The meaning here is not every man, but it means that you're to pray for all men, all kinds of men. You're to pray for believers and unbelievers. For family members and non-family members. For people in this country, people in other countries. Pray for your friends and those who aren't your friends. All kinds of What did Jesus say? He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so we're to have broad prayers. We're to pray for all men. Our prayers are to be universal in nature. We'll talk more about that in another sermon. But then Paul goes on to get more specific. And he identifies, interestingly enough, one specific group for whom we are to pray. And that is, first part of verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority. We're to pray for those in power, for those who sit on thrones, for those who exercise authority over us, those who make decisions that affect our lives. The Bible is a very practical book. It's a book about life. It deals with many different areas of our lives. And one of the areas the Bible covers is our relationship with the civil government. The Bible says you have two primary responsibilities toward the civil government. One is found in Romans 13 that we read earlier together. As Gavin led you in our corporate reading of Scripture. And as you notice there, the primary responsibility Paul gives us in Romans 13 is to submit to it. Every person is to be in subjection, Paul says, to the governing authorities. Christians ought to be the most law-abiding citizens in the country, except in areas where the civil law requires us to disobey God's law. Our obligation before the Lord is to be subject to it, and obedient to it. But the other responsibility the Bible gives to us in regard to the civil government is to pray for it. That's what Paul tells us here. Pray on behalf of all men for kings 
and for all who are in authority. Why would Paul mention that to Timothy? Well, they lived under the time of the Roman Empire, and the Roman emperor at this point was Nero, a brutal tyrant. People didn't want to even think about Nero, much less pray for him. It was hard to garner much sympathy for such a wicked, evil man. And yet Paul says, put him on the prayer list. Pray. Pray for kings. Pray for all who are in authority. That means, folks, we are to pray for those who are in positions of authority over us. We're to pray for presidents for congressmen and women, for senators, for Supreme Court justices, for governors, for boards of aldermen, city councilmen, mayors. We are to pray for kings and for all who are in authority. Even though you may disagree with them politically, even though you may not respect them as a person, even though you may think their values and beliefs are different from yours, your obligation as a believer is to pray for them. And so we're to pray for all kinds of people. But then third, we find in the text we're to expect various kinds of results from our prayers. It's interesting that Paul does not stop with simply telling us to pray for those in positions of authority, but it goes on to specify some of the things we should expect from them as we pray. And to put it another way, these are the kinds of things we should expect from kings, from those who are in authority over us in our context from our elected officials. It's just what Paul was saying, when you pray for these people in positions of authority, pray that you would experience these kinds of things from their leadership. What are they? Paul says in verse 2. Pray for kings and all their authorities so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The key words are so that. You pray for them, Paul says, so that you might experience this. Now this does, verse does give us, I think, some sense of our expectations from our elected officials, those in authority over us. They should lead us, Paul says, and we should expect as we pray for them that they would lead us to a tranquil and quiet life. They should be promoters of peace, of reconciliation, of unity and harmony. You know, the partisanship in our political world has become so paralyzing, nothing gets done. Now, folks, that's a nonpartisan statement because 
you have folks on both sides of the political spectrum who contribute to that paralysis. Our government officials ought not to be name callers, finger pointers, and blame shifters. They should not divide the country or the community by racial rhetoric, economic policy, or political persuasion. They should not be warmongers who are quick to pull the trigger, nor should they intrude into the lives of the citizens so that the rule of the government becomes a burden, more of a burden than a help. When the government is doing its job from the biblical perspective, the citizens are able to go about their lives, as Paul says, in a tranquil and quiet way. They're able to pursue their goals and their occupational endeavors in a quiet way. When the government is doing its job, it is noticed less and not more. When people are in an uproar, when there is unrest or strife, when there is discord or disunity, the government is not fulfilling its God-given function. So Paul says, pray. Pray for those in authority over you so that you and your family may live a tranquil and quiet life. But he says more than that. He says that tranquil and quiet life is to be lived in godliness and dignity. It's interesting to me that Paul ties together those two concepts of, of godliness and dignity with those who are in positions of authority over us. Now, if you're to pray for those in authority, expecting those kinds of things from them, then certainly those are the kinds of people whom you ought to seek to be the in authority over you. An ungodly person is not going to promote godliness. A person who has no dignity is not going to lead our nation in a dignified way. Now, we are two days away from a presidential election. Many people on both sides of the political spectrum have said this is the most important election in their lifetime. I agree with that. This election will say a lot about our nation. It will say a lot about the character, the direction, and the moral fiber of our country. It is not my responsibility to endorse a candidate. It is my responsibility before God to teach you the Bible and to apply biblical truth to life, to exhort you to live your lives based upon biblical principles. In God's providence, I didn't plan it this way. I wouldn't have planned it this way. But 
God's providence, here we are two days away from an election. Looking at a text that says you're to pray for those in authority over you. And you're to pray for them so that your family can live at peace. Can have a tranquil existence. Pursue godliness. And live in dignity. Those aren't my words, folks. It's God's word. It's not what I say. It's what God says. Our country is in an economic mess. People say that we're headed for a physical cliff, and that appears to be the case. I want to make it clear, both political parties have added to that overspending and to the assumption of that enormous debt. And we talk about the debt in the abstract many times. We talk about it on economic terms. I want to talk it on spiritual terms. The Bible has something to say about that. God's word clearly teaches that to be so deeply in debt to owe more than you can repay. Basically to be enslaved by your creditors. To obligate yourself to more than you can do. Whether it's as a family or as a nation is immoral. It is a sin. It cannot bring God's blessing. And when you are deeply in debt, your life is far from tranquil or quiet. People come to see me, as they have done numerous times, when people come to see me about their financial situation and their indebtedness and the burden that they're carrying every day because they've got so much more to repay than they can ever hope of repaying. There is nothing peaceful about their lives. They're anxious, they're worried, they're stressed, they're distracted, they're overwhelmed by it. Excessive debt, whether it's a family or as a nation, does not lead to quietness or tranquility. And so as you consider the election from the economic side, you have to ask, to ask yourself if one candidate will add to the debt, if another will seek to reduce the debt. Will one continue to spend recklessly, not considering the moral and long-term consequences, or will one have the courage to try to stop the bleeding, even at his own political peril? Will one handle the economy in a way that leads to more tranquility and quietness in your life while the other destroys it? It's one of the things you should consider. The other side is to ask yourself, who will lead the nation to a greater sense of, as Paul says here, godliness and dignity? Now, the commander-in-chief, or the president, is the commander-in-chief. He's not the pastor-in-chief. We don't look to our president for our spiritual oversight and leadership. That's what the church is for. 
but certainly we want godly people to promote godliness. We talk a lot about social issues. And folks, to be honest, for believers, the social issues are the important issues. Because so many times it is the social issues that are the biblical issues. Now outside of the indebtedness, which to me is a moral issue, it's a biblical issue. There are two social issues that are prevalent in this campaign. One is abortion. The right to life. And the other is the assault upon traditional, which folks is, means biblical, marriage. And homosexuality. Folks, the Bible is clear. It's clear about those issues. Abortion is a sin. It is the taking of a human life. The Bible teaches that life begins at conception. And whether it's late term, early term, middle term, it doesn't matter, folks. The taking of a life through abortion is sin. And we live in a nation that accepts it, that promotes it, that pays for it. We can't expect God to bless us. If we're going to turn from the clear teaching of what God says, and as a nation, we're going to murder babies. How can we pray for God to bless? So, if there is a candidate who is pro-life and one who is not, as a believer, that impacts your decision. Folks, God is pro-life. He is the creator of life. He is the giver of life. The other issue is marriage and the whole issue of homosexuality, which, folks, is more clear to me. That lifestyle is just an abomination to the Lord. That's what the Bible says. It's an abomination. It's a perversion. You know what the Bible says? Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't say that. God said it. I'm not sure there's such a thing as a homosexual Christian. Because God says they don't inherit the kingdom. It is a perversion, folks, of God's design and God's plan. It brought God's judgment upon God, Sodom and Gomorrah. Read the story. God rained fire and brimstone on them because they perverted His plan. And don't think God won't bring judgment. 
upon our nation if we willfully turn from what He has declared to be true and right. I told you a few weeks ago when I was preaching from chapter 1 and homosexuality was mentioned. That issue frightens me for our nation more than any other. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, It um, is a sign, folks, of God basically turning his back. Verse 24, Romans 1. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. What did God do? God gave them over. Why? For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them over. The degrading passions. For the women exchanged the unnatural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error and justice they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. That's what God says. God finally gave them over. They didn't acknowledge him. He said, fine. It scares me for our nation. It frightens me. There's one thing that makes me think that God is turning his back on the United States of America. It is our open acceptance of what is such a clear perversion of God's natural order of things. And you've got a candidate who supports homosexual unions and or marriage and one who does not, folks, that impacts your decision as a believer. There may be other social issues of significance, but those are the two that stand out for me. Now, that is, folks, that is as political as I get. I'll be honest with you, that is, you can ask my wife, that is the most political I have ever been from the pulpit. That would be derelict in my duties. If coming to this text at this day, I did not tell you what the Bible says 
the truth of God's word does apply to every area of life. And that includes the election for whom you vote. Your faith in Jesus, your relationship with God, your commitment to the truth of his word must influence your political decisions and choices. But I want to stress two things as I close. One is that our confidence does not come from any elected official or any person in a position of authority. Our trust and our confidence are in the Lord. That's why I put Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 on the front of your bulletin. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Our confidence, folks, does not come from Mr. Obama or Mr. Romney. It doesn't matter how the election turns out Tuesday. Our trust does not come from any man. Our trust is in the Lord. And so look to him, trust in him, obey him, honor him. That is your obligation as a believer. The other thing I want to leave with you is what this passage is all about. This is a passage that is a call to prayer. Pray for all men, Paul says, and especially those in positions of authority. Pray for them. It might be that you pray for their conversion. If you do, pray earnestly for it. It might be that you pray for them to hold biblical values, to make godly decisions, to do what is right in God's eyes. If so, pray earnestly for that. It might be that you pray for their repentance so they'll seek the Lord with all their heart. If so, you pray earnestly for that. It might be that you pray that they have wisdom or courage or moral fortitude and the grace to make the right decisions and lead the right way. If so, pray earnestly for those things. But above all, pray for Christ's kingdom to come. Pray for his reign and his rule to make more and more of an impact, to have more and more of an influence upon this world in which we live. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Pray, pray that the King of kings and the Lord of lords would bring his reign, his rule, more effectively, immediately to bear upon your life and mine. We will be obedient. Honor him and experience his blessing upon our lives, our children's lives, and our grandchildren's. Let's pray. King of the nations, Lord of the universe. We humbly ask for your forgiveness for the ways in which our nation has left you, forgotten you, turned away from you in your word. And there's so many obvious things that just clearly defy what you've said is right. Would you forgive us? Forgive our complacency 
Forgive our acceptance of what is such an abomination in your eyes. And we pray for repentance. We pray for our nation. Father, we submit to your will and your way. We pray for our families, for our children, our grandchildren. Did you keep us from destruction? Help us not to self-destruct, but help us to trust in you and to find your blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.